Welcome to the Future of Work, a Trending in Ed series. This is Mike Palmer. I'm excited today to bring back Beth Porter, who I interviewed back in 2021, relatively recently. She's been doing really amazing work, beginning as a teacher. She got involved in educational technology relatively early, wound up at Pearson, spent a good chunk of her career in that capacity, in different roles, eventually decided to go back to MIT to engage with the Media Lab there, launched her own company called Riff Analytics, and most recently has been leading Esme Learning. She's a co-founder there, helping to navigate the complex world around us, continue to upskill, stay job relevant, stay ahead of trends. She's a really keen thinker, and she's been thinking about the future of work. I was really happy to get her on, and I'm really excited to highlight her work. With that, let's take it away with Beth Porter from Esme Learning, Trending in Ed, The Future of Work. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited today to be joined by Beth Porter, who is the president, COO, and co-founder of a company called Esme Learning. She's got a really interesting background in product and technology and education and all sorts of interesting things. I'd rather hear it directly from you, Beth. Welcome to Trending in Education. Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm really glad to be here and excited to have this conversation. I'm hoping we can cover a whole bunch of stuff. It's going to be fun and interesting for your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. We always begin by asking for our guests' origin story. So in your own words, what got you to this point in your professional life? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I'll tell the story nonetheless. I started in my career as a teacher. I worked as an instructor in college and in high school teaching mathematics. And I was really it, I was really jet. I love math. I just, I studied college and I just felt like a, a lot of natural enjoyment from uh, encountering that subject. And I really thought that I would do that forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what I discovered about teaching about myself is that I really enjoyed all of the interaction. I enjoyed actually the social space of learning, hmm. uh, interacting with my students, interacting with my colleagues, really trying to make learning an active process where we were all learning together while we were teaching. Yeah. What I found was that a couple of things were true. One, my eagerness did not translate into eagerness for other people in my departments all the time. They're like, yeah. oh, I'm here as a date. I'm just checking in. I'm doing my job and I'm going home. And yeah. they just didn't have as much enthusiasm for the creation process. And then the second thing was that I really just was not excited about the administrative aspects of schooling. And it turned me off to teaching as a profession at that time. So I found my way into software in the way that you only hear about entails, but this really did happen to me, which is that I looked for a math software job by searching on the words math software on the internet. Yeah. A nascent internet at that time, but nonetheless, open resource that you could browse and explore. And I found a company called MathSoft, literally. Yeah. And I was browsing this at my husband's office. And the building that housed this company was across the street, and I was looking at it. Wow. So I thought there was something that maybe um, spoke to me about that moment. Kiss me. Yeah. Yeah, I better go pursue it. So anyway, I, I, I was there for 11 years through 
uh, management buyout and acquisition, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of interesting transitions. I learned everything there was to learn about software engineering. I started from the bottom. I was in tech support, that lowly place where you uh, learn all of customer pain. You learn why they care about your product and that they're really passionate about it and they really want to be your customers. Yeah. And so I learned both of the very positive sides and the negative sides, and that really helped me get the, the grounding that I needed to become a good product representative. I look back on both my teaching, which is a lot of, is about empathy, mm. and my time and support. I think about it a lot yeah. and draw from it all the time mm. when I think, how am I going to build the best product? How am I going to have the best experience? How am yeah. I going to have a successful interaction with the people that I work with now? It's, it's a pathway that opens up frequently from support into product. And now product is also getting much closer to support functions in yeah. organizations rather than, you know, right. only have these laboratory setting focus groups. It's <laughs> also take some inbound calls from your actual users. Hey. So yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we use that. We take techniques from support and use them in customer discovery and in our modeling and all that. So yeah. anyway, I was there for a long time. I worked at Pearson in the technology division at a time of really huge growth of technology at Pearson, which was very formative and like yeah. gave me a lot of skills. The big difference there is that I was working in a huge company yeah. uh, that was so different from the small company that I had been a part of. And it really taught me about the dynamics of large companies that was really different than the sort of like clubby way that we were operating inside of Mansoft. Yeah. And, and then I found myself eventually, I, I decided I wasn't at, at edX and I decided to, to leave um, corporate things and enterprises and go back to university and work in a research lab at MIT. Mm. It was completely accidental, not a planned activity at all. Yeah. But I ended up there working for Sandy Penlin in his human dynamics lab at the media lab at MIT. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that is how I got started on the road to entrepreneurship. He was um, himself a huge advocate of things spawning from university actually becoming things. Yeah. And just languishing inside of university settings. And he's himself been a founder in many companies. And so he encouraged me to come out and do some interesting entrepreneurial work. Yeah. And that's what led to Riff being founded, R-I-F-F. -F. Can you right. talk quickly about that? Yeah. So before we get into ESME, which is the whole thing, the first company that I founded with Sandy and two other co-founders was Riff Analytics. We were really interested in the foundational research that had been happening at the Human Dynamics Lab at MIT, which was all around how people interact with one another. We started with physical interaction. We had people wearing actual physical badges on their bodies that had uh, you know, a microphone and a proximity yeah. detector. Like, a, like the Andy Circus ping pong balls from uh, Lord <laughs> of the Rings. You're actually, so we were actually instrumenting humans. Like, right, right. This is it, right? Physically, put a, yeah. Put a thing on and then walk around, yeah. talk to people, do things, and then we'll measure that and we'll see what the interaction pattern looks like. And from there, we were really interested in virtual experiences online. Um, learning was a, a parallel effort being done in that team at the time. And we were like, oh, this is interesting. Maybe we should take this technology, put it inside of a video platform where you're kind of already an instrumented environment anyway. Yeah. See what we can learn from online interaction that may be the same or different from in-person interaction. Mm -hmm. And so Riff was born. We do instrumentation of video and text chat environments. We study the interaction patterns. We study communication, both uh, verbal and nonverbal, so nodding. Yeah. 
Michael is nodding while I'm speaking. So things like that, sentiment, we combine in all these sort of different things that you can learn from the video and text chat environments. We model conversations. We talk, we give that feedback to people to talk to them about what we observe. And then we allow that sort of self-awareness to help germinate a new set of behaviors or reinforce ones that you're happy with. You're like, right. oh, I, have, I have a great relationship with Michael. Mm -hmm. I see that relationship in this data that I'm getting as objective feedback. I think I'll just keep doing it. Or, ooh, I have this really great right. relationship with David. And, oh my gosh, look at how many times I interrupted him. And look how off kilter we are. So it just, yeah. that, it's that's fascinating. Cool. That's like that, a whole nother... That, I, I do try to have guests back on with three visits. You get uh, your own trending and education refrigerator magnet. So <laughs> I think we may need to do a return engagement to, to sure. riff about riff because especially if you're giving that feedback in real time, that's super fascinating to me because I know some types of feedback can increase your cognitive load and or cause you to get into a spiraling effect if you can't course correct. So my wheels are spinning. That's amazing <laughs> that you built it. But that's a tease for maybe a future conversation. Yeah. We did want to get into a little bit more about what ESME is. Can you catch yeah. us up on what ESME Learning is? Yeah, ESME Learning is a online service provider. We create professional courses for a people who are really, we don't actually care where they come from, but typically they're mid-career folks who are interested in technical topics, who are trying to upskill or reskill themselves for correction or direction change in their career or uh, to start new enterprise and yeah. entrepreneurial endeavors. We are really focused on the sort of the boundary between technical topics and business because we see uh, a lot of value, not just in like the straight skill development that's needed, like learning how to code right. or learning how to do data science in a, at a low level. And then maybe not just the very often abstract and not totally applicable business skills development that you might have going to business school, but really the intersection of those two things, yeah. where technical and business meet and allow professionals in modern settings to make better decisions as a result of learning these topics together. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it is something we talk about a decent amount on this show, 21st century skills to pay those 21st century bills. Yeah. And with inflation where it is, you need your skills to continue to, to, to get better. And that was where I thought SMA was in a really interesting space. We also like to quote uh, Wayne Gretzky, skate to where the, the puck is going. Yeah. And it's, it does seem like a lot of the, the skills and competencies are to give an edge to someone who's already maybe a little bit forward thinking. There's courses on the blockchain. There's things to be learned about managing through digital disruption, which is mm -hmm. probably the new normal. Like the new normal is it never becomes yeah. unchaotic again. And also it seems like your career, you've skated in that direction as well. Can you share some of your thinking around skills and competencies and, and where, you know, mid-career, any point in your career, how you can stay ahead of the curve a bit? And maybe that dovetails with some of what you're doing at Esme. One of the things that people often forget is that this is always combination activities, right? If you're doing a skill in a in isolation, that's good. Yes. You, if you want to learn how to be a Java developer, you should definitely learn and then practice repeatedly the skill that is developing in Java. No question about it. But if you're trying to actually stay ahead of digital disruption, that's a very different kind of activity. There you need a combination of both technical grounding, to be sure. And depending on the level or the kind of job you have, you need more or less technical grounding. Yeah. 
But the other thing you need is you need to have training in creativity, empathy. Mm. You need to understand how to collaborate. It's not a solo sport. This is the one thing that we have embedded in our ESME courses, which I can explain in a bit, but also is just philosophically a firm belief and an observation that I have about the people who are the most successful reacting to and planning for a future disruption, which is that they are highly communicative, highly empathetic, very creative. They don't have rigid views. It's not that they can't make decisions or that they aren't very able to respond quickly and decisively when something comes along, but they hold on to ideas loosely enough mm. so that they can get to the next level of uh, proficiency and they are able to have you know, what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset, which I'm sure you've talked about sure. this yeah. show, but people don't really regularly practice. We talk about it like it's right. the most ideal state you can ever be in, but you actually have to practice it. It's its own thing, mm -hmm. um, which is this idea of really taking risks in environments that uh, allow for that and then to be able to practice that in more highly business-oriented environments as you go. Yeah. So, uh, th that's all the stuff that I think we don't spend enough time mm -hmm. uh, helping people learn so that they can develop all these situational intelligences that you need to respond to digital disruption. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then it sounds like there's that blending has to happen somewhere. And now that you're, you know, really leading a, a learning company, you got to, you know, think about how do you blend that in? How do you build in the soft skills uh, component, the the social emotional component? As my listeners know, I get social emotional baby. Oh, I'm going to stop doing that at some point. <laughs> Whitney's still gone too soon. But the idea that that needs to be taught, but it's going to be taught through a digital format. What's your experience been like in terms of the digital delivery of this? And then particularly the digital delivery of soft skills and social emotional competencies. It, it's in the word. I'll just say that, which is it's social. Learning is social. And the minute we sort of remove people from the social environment, that's not to say that you can't have extremely fruitful moments of individual learning and individual skill development still very important. But if you want to put that into the skill into action, most of the time it has to be in a social environment. You're either teaching it to somebody else, you're collaborating with somebody else on a problem that you have to solve, you're learning from others so that you can become better and better at that skill or some combination of all three of those things. So social emotional learning has to start with social. And so much of the time when we look at professional development environments or we look at programming, it's very individual. Like you go and sign up, especially online, right? Like particularly online. It's all yeah. about if it's adaptive learning, that's fine, good. Yeah. If I want to learn French, I go on Duolingo and I start going through all the stuff and it's fine. But in the end, the stuff that we're talking about, like teaching how to be responsive to technical uh, change, rapid disruptive change in business, you have got to be part of a social network, learning and growing all the time by interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. And so when we program our courses, that's programmed in. Yes, people watch things and read things and do things, of course. But a huge part of literally every single experience that we offer is peer learning. Right. Uh, we put people in small groups. We have them do exercises. We have a larger community forum that's all about sort of idea exploration. We exploit some of these notions in social science around loose and strong ties or, you know, strong and weak ties where yeah. you have 
strong ties for people who are really close who give you all the information you need to do really um, tight knit work together in a team, a cross-functional or a full stacked team. And we also give them an opportunity to interact with people throughout in a cohort. So that you have this explorer experience of going out and learning things from people who you're not regularly interacting with and bringing back to the group and have both of those influences throughout the entire time of the course. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're cohort-based and scheduled in time. And the other term of art that's out there is micro-credential. So it is certificates is what we're talking about here. Can you explain the exact credentialing that happens? Yeah, we actually give out certificates and badges. And one of the things that's nice about badges is that they typically have a set of metadata associated with them. So you can really introspect over what actually was inside. It's nice that you have an, a certificate from MIT for AI leadership yeah. or some other course like that. But really what uh, people want to know is what did you learn? Mm-hmm. What what happened? In, what happened in that mysterious six weeks that just went on online with that cohort of a couple hundred people? Like what happened? At least it scratches the surface trying to uncover what a person actually learns by having sort of a digital, really decorated competency-based badge that you can uh, look at and find out what what actually went on. And I think we're still tinkering with that process and we want to make it better and better over time, but we offer both so that people can at least start to have a credential that could be more meaningful. Yeah. And that the portability of those credentials or badges and how the personal learning record can continue to be populated by different providers is a really interesting space. And it relates also to a lot of the data analytics around skills and competencies that tie to employment data. The World Economic Forum does a lot of work on skills, competencies. You're someone who spent a ton of time thinking about this, and you've also, you know, demonstrated that forethought around you want to develop competencies that have some staying power and then continue to have relevance in the job market. What's your perspective on the the current state of the skills ecosystem and maybe some thoughts about where it may be heading? I think the skills ecosystem still lacks one really fundamental thing, which is this notion that your skills are still something that you get individually measured on all the time. And yet the way that we work And the way that we actually achieve value inside of business environments is by being collaborative and working in teams. Mm -hmm. And yet it's just not reflected in people. Actually, it's not even just that it's not reflected. People look upon it with great suspicion and it's not, it's just like socially not acceptable yet to have a credential that's associated with a group. Group work. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you can have a grade if you gone to business school or observed yeah. it from afar, you know that half of the reason why people are in business school is to work collaboratively with others, to build a network, to yeah. have like business associations sometimes for life. Right. right. Like, it's working collaboratively and then also drinking collaboratively is the other component <laughs> of business school, at least historically. Socially. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Yeah. The social part. But this, yeah. you know, the professional and the social, they go together. Like it or not, I mean, this is how business is done. You have yeah. to have Social components, professional components, collaborative, communicative. Yes, of course, there are many places that operate very hierarchically, but at the end of the day, whether that is a very visible component of a workplace or sort of a shadow workplace where work really gets done. Yeah. And among these uh, people who have these very tight, trusted social, professional relationships, that is not something that we ever credentialize or we ever value or we ever talk about as being important. And yet it is absolutely the glue Mm. of a successful organization and we should practice it as a skill 
and then we should laud it and find a way to credentialize it as an ongoing sort of um, development of your professional self as you go through. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially, you know, circling back a little bit to the, the, the riff concept, if there are ways in which you could be somewhat quantitative or at least rigorous in terms of how you measure good action and how you flag and ideally course correct for inappropriate behaviors, because it does feel like we are hypersensitive now to toxicity. Yeah. And if there are ways in which we could identify like the early indicators of it and also understand that it's just like a healthy social environment, a, a place of psychological safety is a shared feature of an environment. At the same time, if things are toxic, that is something that everyone in some way needs to think about where they have any autonomy or any influence over trying to steer towards a better culture. Um, I'm really glad you brought up uh, psychological safety because it's actually one of the foundational principles of how we develop RIF in the first place. And in fact, I'll just say RIF is embedded in most of the ESME course experiences because we wanted to have an environment in which people could practice being together, working in collaborative groups, get feedback for themselves, learn, grow, develop in this other dimension, not just the things that we're explicitly teaching, but these other components of how to be successful and how to have a mindset uh, shift happening while you're doing skill set shift. But psychological safety is really important because one of the things I think that is a mistake that we were on the verge of making was making anything about the RIF environment punitive or judgmental. The thing that was really important to us as a forever principle for the whole company is that it's always um, something that is formative, mm -hmm. that is transparent to all participants. Mm -hmm. It's not something that can be leveraged against you. And yeah. it's something that's supposed to be growth oriented. So yeah. Yeah. when we give feedback to people, the feedback goes directly to the person mm -hmm. or the participants in any particular scope or context. Mm -hmm. If you and I and two other people were in a RIF meeting, all the feedback about that meeting goes to all of us. Yeah. And it's not like manager gets it. Right. Some other higher authority gets it. We get it. Mm -hmm. And that also means that we are collectively responsible for the outcome. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, I'm the person just to speak up, so it's my right. responsibility to speak up. It's that it's our collective responsibility to make sure that the team is successful together, that you have good engagements. And that way mm -hmm. you create an environment in which the expectation is, this is a group activity. We are responsible for ourselves as a group. We're responsible for ourselves as individuals, and we're going to work on all of those together. Yeah. And uh, this is what the transparency that's a tangible measurement allows you to start to broker a conversation around. Because yeah. Anyway, it's really hard to confront somebody and say, you know, I think you're an interrupting jerk. <laughs> but if you have a, a score that says, oh, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Odd interruptions. There. You know, it's the visibility and the awareness, then it just becomes a little bit more. It's a little easier to have the conversation. It makes a lot of sense. One of the trends I've been watching over the years is feedback. As feed feedback gets better, or as a friend of the show, uh, Steve Jordans likes to call it feed forward. It's more about advice for future behavior rather than critique of past, yeah. but it's using past behavior as a flag to say, hey, you want to steer in, in a good direction moving forward. That seems like something that should be possible nowadays, perhaps in ways that yeah. hasn't been true over the last 20 years, which is the lion's share of my professional life has been trying to understand what's just now possible. What's really amazing now is so much more stuff is just now possible. It can be built and in market much faster. And you now have experience coming out of the media lab and now founding a couple of companies. 
Can you talk about how things have changed and, and what it takes to be entrepreneurial, to get new things going in this wacky day and age that we're living in? I think one of the things that's undervalued as a first step in anybody's entrepreneurial journey, because they always say, oh, you got to get your pitch right, you got to raise some money and you got to make some tech and get a friend or whatever. I actually think that people spend less time actually talking to other people about their ideas before they go out and start to try to do something. And I would say this is also for career development. One of the things that I learned early on is that you, you can't talk to enough people because um, what you're trying to understand is something about yourself through that conversation. Yes, of course, you want to try to give something back as well. But the whole idea of going out and talking to people in the adjacent field, in something you're interested in going in, somebody who's kind of higher up in their career development than you are yeah. or whatever it is, is that you start to run up against the bumpers of the thing that you might be interested in. And then it allows you to figure out what's my next. And maybe I don't really want to be an entrepreneur because I didn't totally realize what would be involved and right. incredibly complex damn having to be both the total inventor of this thing and then also the person who talks about it constantly and yeah. of raises money and also runs an operation assistance it's yeah. insane yeah. like that anybody's successful <laughs> it's sort of amazing you should know yourself and know whether that's a possible direction and if you have an entrepreneurial sort of bug just knowing how much of that you can do and how much of it you're going to need uh, partners to help do uh, with and for you and talking to people is going to help you understand that yeah. um, even if you're not like let's just set entrepreneurship aside even if you're just trying to upskill and reskill and figure out where to go from here whatever wherever you're going yeah um, again i feel like we undervalue the conversation mm. as a way to help gauge what your next thing is and mm. talking to people about what their experience has been and pulling all of that anecdotal information in and build your sort of like next self, right? And yeah. then learning, you gotta learn stuff. And right. Learn it with other people and you gotta learn as many things as you can and you should be learning for your whole entire life. And right. like you just, people say lifelong learning all the time. I just can't overemphasize how important it is to always think of yourself as a learner. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It also makes me think about the the notion of social capital and relying on your network where, you know, actually asking them for a conversation and then having the conversation ultimately lead in a good direction. I think the, the way in which those conversations have been transformed by technology and by the pandemic is also super interesting. But one of the things that I've heard researched, and it reminds me a little bit of what you were talking about with Riff, is that more, more frequent but shorter touch points with your staff and with other humans are higher yields than less frequent, longer touch points, which almost seems like an evolution of digital. And then similarly, how much can be handled through Slack or yeah. SMS versus when do you need to be on the phone or talking to them? Any thoughts on, on where this is all heading? Because it does feel yeah. like there's been some upheaval and transformation of our social interaction platforms as someone who's built one. Any perspective on all of this? I, I think that there's this uh, like weird debate that I don't totally understand that it's somehow either or like you can either have really short interactions and that's successful mm. or you can have long interactions and that's successful. And I'm like, I don't, why, why do I have to choose between those two things? I don't understand that. Yeah. To me, it's really about purpose. 
If my purpose is to make sure that somebody on my team knows that I am there to support them and help them and make sure that they feel listened to and that I ask them what I can do to help them be successful in the organization, that might be a five-minute check-in every week because I just want to make sure, hey, we haven't seen each other. Yeah. Are you good? What do you need right. from me? How can I help you? What am I not doing? Can I help? Can I tell you some things that maybe I need you to do differently? That can be a very short conversation. Yeah. And frequent interactions actually do help because then you're just like, you're, you don't have to, you don't have to wait till a crisis boils over yes. to be able to have a conversation with that person. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think one of the things that gets dismissed is this idea that you don't need long form conversation right. anymore. I fundamentally disagree with that. There are so many complex things coming out of new technologies, new ways of operating from a business point of view, and new ways of interacting with one another online and in person that definitely require long-form conversations, brainstorming, yes, punctuated by breaks, yes, sure. yeah. with being on video all the time, all yeah. those things notwithstanding, but these are long conversations that need to have plenty of time to let you think, co collect your thoughts by yourself and with others, mm -hmm. and they are those are definitely long form. That is not quick work. Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me of a good friend of mine, a colleague for years, used to always say, you can't get strategic in a 30 minute meeting. No. I don't know if that's intentionally true. Started. But, but exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it does make me think of, we did a shout out to Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, the father of flow who passed away recently. Yeah. But the flow state, to your points, really throughout this conversation is really a shared state that transcends the individual and how do we get to a place to cultivate the team yeah. to get tuned so that it's more in that like flow state is, yeah. is a really interesting notion. I'm actually really glad you brought up flow because one of the things I'm super excited about professional development and learning in new modalities is game-based learning. I am hmm. uh, super excited about the idea that I think it's just been long the reserve of kids. Like, I want to reclaim games. I just yeah. want to. I'm an adult. I'm I'm good. I love games. I'd love to be able to have that as a mechanism for learning. And I just think that the game environments are becoming hmm. so much more sophisticated, and there are so many social games yeah. and uh, collaborative games that are just, they're not particularly connected to professional development now. Yeah. But in-based environments just give us a hugely rich space for exploring all the things that we've just been talking about. Yeah. Collaboration, communication, shared goals, uh, the uh, ability to take risks and learn, all the stuff that is what we're training, that is all mindset development mm -hmm. and great ground for learning how to be with one another in a situation that's safe Mm -hmm. but it's destructive and potentially transformative. Yeah. And I'm really interested in investments in that. And when I look around and say, what am I excited about? What do I want yeah. to be coming out? I don't have to be the inventor. <laughs> I want to, I want somebody else to invest yeah. stuff it out too. I look at game-based professional development, game-based learning as a really a place that's underdeveloped and people talk about it. And I don't know, mostly in the context of VR, Yeah. but I think that just immersive games where you have really tangible rich, meaty problems solved with others is a really great space for learning. Yeah, that's interesting. Even the escape room way yeah. that was going and the idea yeah. that it's an experience. Shared experiences was something that was all the rage prior to the pandemic. And then it yeah. became about social distancing. And then even that social distancing led for ways to feel more proximal, yeah. 
hands. Digitally, which is really interesting. Uh, this is now where we could put on our, our goggles and begin the virtual experience part of the conversation. I'm only kidding, but where do you see things headed? Are there any uh, trends or larger yeah. waves that you think are worth paying attention to? Yeah. So in addition to game-based learning, I think one of the other ones I'm really excited about, and, and maybe this will, maybe your, some of your listeners will be like, ah, you know, she's not thinking about it the right way, but, you know, I'm not as excited about VR as everybody else since I think one of the things that I really observe about what's important to business leaders, let's just talk about people who are in our sweet spot. I think we have to learn more about what's around us, like develop better situational awareness, learn more from our environment, learn more from what's going on in order to be able to bring that material in yeah. and then use it as part of the information space that we use to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm keyed in on AR versus VR right yeah. now, because I think we don't, um, again, it's this underdeveloped, underutilized set of technologies. It's much easier to develop. Typically, it doesn't require as fancy equipment. It's a little bit more accessible. It it, it takes advantage of or can take advantage of the base of everything that's around you that you're yeah. just blindly shooting your way through as a human and you just don't pay any attention to. Mm-hmm. And I think that that as a thing that you can use to learn from, that's something I'm super excited about. And I just don't think a lot of creative energy has been put into using it for learning. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that I'm always on the lookout for. And we are starting to actually build some capabilities around internally that we're excited about releasing next year. Yeah. Um, so AR definitely game-based learning for sure. I'm also a big fan of using data to give feedback to learners. So all this space of predictive analytics, some colleges do it really well. Hmm. So they're just like microscopically collecting data about every single, did they go to the dining hall today? Did they sign in at the basketball gym? Did they, whatever, did they chat with somebody on the internal app of of the school? All of that stuff sounds, oh my gosh, it could be used for terror. Yeah, big brother, yeah. Carrying yeah. big brotherish. Luckily, we have laws, at least in the United States, that protect. There is a class of data that is protected that is uh, educational data. But what I like about that, it doesn't feel big brotherish to me, but I think it's really useful, is trying to use it to intervene to help students become more successful. And rather than simply saying, we know there's going to be summer melt. We know there's going to be attrition. We know that people are at risk. We're taking it on the chin or at the erosion of standards so that you just drive more retention. I think all of those things um, are just like, that's old thinking. And really we should be thinking about how we can use data for student good mm-hmm. and for student um, health. And this is everything from mental health to just like helping them stay on track, stuff about financial, all of it, the whole yeah. thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Identify as the triggers for a student being more at risk than they were before and how do we intervene? I'm excited about that as it's getting that to be more pervasive and something that gets used with a little bit more clarity everywhere. Yeah, it makes sense. And it sounds like we're going to want folks to be equipped with those cutting edge skills that they need. And if they need those skills to be an entrepreneur or to be a mid-career professional aiming for some higher heights, they should go to SMA learning. And then also uh, your business model is, is also to sell through the organization as well. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So we have two ways that we sell our courses. One is that we go directly to consumers. Lots of people are really interested in courses being offered by the um, experts that we have through our business partnerships with universities. Uh, we work with MIT, 
Oxford University, Cambridge University, Imperial College of Business. Looked like you were slumming a little bit. There. <laughs> I can't, I can't. That's an impressive uh, catalog here, yes. And we work really hard to help make those university partners really successful in delivering extremely high quality, high touch online courses that are just out of the ordinary. They're, they have collaborative elements and they have yeah. multimedia elements and like cool stuff and really um, amazing faculty who have lots of really uh, rich ideas to share. And we just like request yeah. and amplify them and make them awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have those courses and we sell them just direct to people, but then we also sell through various channels and we have relationships with various partners. Mm -hmm. uh, we sell into learning and development groups inside a company. We just are trying to do the thing that we think is the most important problem to solve for adults in yeah. this world, which is for them to become smarter and smarter over the course of their career right. by being able to have the opportunity to encounter new materials in a, a learning environment with others and then bring all of that really back into the workplace so that it doesn't feel like I learned once and then I worked. Right. <laughs> the two never came together. We want that to be something that is truly woven together throughout people's careers so they can feel like I learned something and it really helped me change myself and my workplace and it was meaningful. Mm-hmm. Fantastic stuff. Uh, any concluding thoughts, final thoughts as we're wrapping up here, Beth? If uh, folks wanted to look at Riff, where do they go? Uh, Riffanalytics.ai. Riffanalytics.ai. We didn't talk about the robot overlords. There's, there's plenty <laughs> of things to be concerned about how the humans stay ahead. But have any concluding thoughts as we're wrapping yeah. up? Yeah. One other concluding thought is we don't learn about or teach about ethics and responsible use of technologies nearly enough. And if I had to make a plea to every university on the planet, about one course and one course to add that you would be required to take as a student in any technical field, really any field, it would be about ethics, responsible use of technology, and how to govern uh, your use of that technology inside your business. I think it's critically important. It's an element of courses that we teach, and um, it should be a part of everybody's education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great closing note, and it all comes back to teaching humans to be good humans to each other, and then also learn how to engage with the emerging technology to stay out ahead of the curve. Very much appreciate you sharing your time with us. Uh, Beth, thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure to be here. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you're hearing. If you did, subscribe, write us a review, tell your friends. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.